0: Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Mark Shepard, owner of New Forest Farm and author of Restoration Agriculture. This is the second of three pieces that Mark and I recorded together to talk about restoration agricultural practices and to answer listener questions. In this episode, we discuss four topics based around listeners' questions. The first is Mark's nursery techniques, the second, grafting versus seeding. The third, what tools and infrastructure are needed to start a nursery project. And the fourth, how he markets his tree crops locally or otherwise. We also discuss the importance for each of us to be growing, selecting, and breeding our own plants from seed. To make this easier, Mark shares his STUN method of seeing what plants are best. What does STUN stand for? Sheer, total, utter neglect. After listening to this episode, even if you don't have a green thumb, There's no reason to not be playing with plants, on a variety of scales. Find out more about Mark and his work by listening to the first interview in this series, or by visiting newforestfarm.net. There you can also order a copy of his book, Restoration Agriculture. Before we begin, if you value this show and the work of the podcast in spreading the word of permaculture to the world, lend your assistance in supporting this show and the other projects. Retweet messages sent from at permaculturecst. Leave reviews on iTunes or your favorite podcast sites. The show can also use your financial support, either as a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution. Find out how to do that at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Now then, on to Mark Shepard. Now then, on to Mark Shepard. I'll join you again afterwards for a few thoughts. Well, Mark, thank you for staying on with me to... Continue the conversation and also to answer some listener questions. In setting this up, we were talking about it that rather than try to continue the the conversation that we were having, we'll just kind of lead right into the listener questions that I received and then allow that to provide the forum and the format for speaking more about your work. The first series of questions are about your nursery techniques, and these were asked by Byron Joel and Bryce Regan. The first question was, which nursery techniques do you use?
1: <laughs> yes. And that's actually a very instructive answer because that goes back to my statement before. There is no such thing as one right answer. There are multiple different answers for multiple different scenarios, and it's going to be different depending on the context. Probably the simplest technique that I used... There's a gentleman in Detroit who blogged about visiting my farm. If you do a search for Little House on the Urban Prairie Visits New Forest Farm, he explains how I started with a five-gallon bucket, cut the bottom off a five-gallon bucket, put half-inch mesh hardware cloth at the bottom, then you bury that bucket so two inches of it are sticking out of the ground, fill it full of soil, then you pack the surface with seed that you've leached for a week. Soak it at night, drain it during the day. Then you cover the surface of that bucket with seed. Then you cover the seed with soil, and you put half-inch mesh hardware cloth on top of it and mulch that thing, you know, two feet deep and leave it over the winter. And then in the spring, when your garlic starts coming up, you move the mulch and let the seedlings sprout right through the mesh. A five-gallon bucket, if you're doing apples, you don't know, plant them in fall, obviously. You could have 1,000 little apple seedlings come up in there. If you're doing something like chestnut, which is a larger seed, maybe have 75 to 100 seeds in there. So the tremendous number of individuals that you've just generated, that's one technique. I scaled that up to making a nursery bed where I did a 4x8 sandbox out of cedar or black locust, some rot-resistant wood, with the screen on the bottom, and then you make a second sandbox and put it on top with the screen on the top, and mulch it, and in a four by eight bed, I can probably put a thousand to two thousand chestnuts in a four by eight foot bed. So anybody, even in a like the space between where your car parks and your apartment in a city, you've got enough room to generate thousands of little seedling plants. Well, once my need for plants was greater than my capacity to generate them. I started looking around at other nurseries to do the work for me. And one of the techniques I think that we as permaculturists need to adopt is every time we have some sort of problem, I think it's tap. It's mindless and it's not helpful. The permaculture phrase saying, oh, the problem is, you know, the solution. It's like, uh, do explain what that means, please. Whereas if you think about that is that the problem is the word profit spelled incorrectly. I need hundreds of thousands of seedlings for this farm. How am I going to come up with 100,000 seedlings? And if, they, if I buy them all wholesale, they're five bucks a piece. It's half a million dollars. Oh my gosh, it's so expensive. I can't afford it. Or you can say, wow, a half a million seedlings, look how much money I can make. So what I do is I... Went around, I found found a a number of different nurseries. These are professional guys. These are the people who've been making high-quality nursery stock forever and ever and ever again. No matter how good I get with making little seedlings in my little nursery beds, I'll never get as good as these guys are. They have all the tools, all the equipment, and they've got years and years and years of experience. Why should I reinvent that wheel? So what I do is I go up to them, I bring them my seed. I say, hey, look, I got a deal for you. I'll bring you this seed, and I won't charge you a penny for it because nurseries are accustomed to buying seed from seed collectors. So first of all, I just saved him some money. I'm making him some money, so now he's listening. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to guarantee to buy back 100% of every single plant that you grow for me. And then all of a sudden, ding, his business is based on him paying for seed and then him having to sell all these plants and not knowing if he can sell them all. All of a sudden, I show up, I lower his expenses, I give him the seed for free, and then I guarantee that I'm going to buy every single plant off of him. He is happy as can be. I've just made his business so much better. I've just guaranteed him X dollars worth of sales. Then I say, well, one thing is you've got to cut me a deal. I'm not going to pay 5 bucks a plant. I want him for 3 bucks a plant. He's happy to do that. He doesn't have the expenses. He's guaranteed the sale. He can count on me for paying him X amount of money. Well, now I'm on the hook i got to come up with, you know, $50,000 worth of cash to pay this guy for nursery stock for my seed. Well, instead of saying, oh, my gosh, what am I going to come up with this? It's so expensive. Think about it the other way. Look how much money I can make when I can sell these plants to somebody else. All I have to do is mark my plants up 25%. And that means all I have to do is sell 25% of my plants to somebody else my expenses are all covered. So all my nursery stock is now free and you get plants at less than market rates. It's a simple way to looking at a, at a quote unquote problem. How do I get a half million plants on my farm in a nursery? So that's my ultimate way of doing a nursery is working with professional top of the line nurseries. And right now, one of the nurseries that I work with has a a phytosanitary permit and they can ship to almost every country in the world if I want to. So, my market where I can sell these plants has almost no upper end. And I, I know that what I get is trees that have been paid for. Every tree that's gone on the ground here has been paid for. And actually, most of them went in at a profit of about 50 cents per tree. Because sometimes people ask, well, if you're going to rent land, you know, why would you do this? It's like, well, the reason why I would do this is because every time I put a tree in the ground, I'm making 50 cents per tree. I'll rent ground for one year and make 50 cents per tree, planting it full of trees. And then if the next guy comes along, wants to plow them under, that's his choice. I put my trees in the ground. I did my job. So yes, (laughs) those are my nursery techniques.
0: I'm sitting here a little stunned because the amount of wisdom, if you will, that you just imparted on me and many of the holes you just filled in some of the questions that I've had about permaculture as a profitable venture on a large scale.
1: You know, if you gave me Iowa as my next permaculture project, do you know how much money I'd make? I'd be a zillionaire. Everything we do, this is a design. Permaculture is a design process. If you don't design it to be a profitable venture, don't be surprised if it's not. Design it to be a profitable venture. We can still take care of earth care, people care, in an equitable system. I can offer plants to you. You can buy plants from me for less than any catalog price anywhere except for wild seedlings from the DNR because those are wild, unselected seedlings. We have highly selected plants that are generally half the price of what you can get from anybody else. I think that's service to humanity, that's service to the planet, and that's a fairly equitable system, and it pays for all my plant material.
0: And it works within the system that we currently have.
1: And it works within the current economic system because it has to. It won't let me not work within this current economic system. You know, since we're talking about the current economic system, don't be afraid of debt. Think about this. I got out of college. I was $50,000 in debt. I had no job and no prospects. How on earth can I start farming? Over and over, I hear this line parroted, and it's absolutely BS. Oh, so many young people want to get into farming, but they can't get into farming. For one, yeah, there's a lot of people who think they want to get into farming, But over and over again, I've got people who have land and they don't know what to do with it, and they're desperately looking for some young folks to take over. Well, the young folks who want to take over don't want to actually have responsibility because you actually have to pay your actual bills. Yes, for real. You'll actually have to get up before the sun some days, and you'll actually actually have to stay up until after the sun goes down. You'll be cold, you'll be hot, you'll be wet, and you can be so deeply soul-satisfied. And you have to know how to work the numbers. We started... $50,000 in debt, no job, no prospects. Well, how do you get land? Well, you borrow money. Oh, no, you borrow money. You put the yoke of slavery and you trudge for the rest of your life, pulling the plow and you die in penury. That's what the man wants you to believe. Go to some of these get-rich-quick seminars. This is what people are doing all over the place with real estate is you're buying real estate, distressed real estate. Perhaps somebody missed payments on it. They've got to get rid of it. You help them have a better life, Because you remove the horrible weight of this 100 acre farm that's dragging them down. They can't keep up with it anymore. Now, what you do is you borrow more money to actually improve the asset value of that property. Perhaps you plant half a million trees on it that are now productive. You get it reappraised, it's worth more money. The difference between what you put into it on borrowed money. And what it's appraised at, you can go to the bank and borrow again, and you just put that borrowed money in your pocket. This is what real estate flippers do all the time. They buy, they buy a condo, they spray down the walls, they paint it all white, and then they get it reappraised and they sell it for more money than they bought it for. That's how this system works. We can do it with permaculture, and instead of leaving behind these little cracker box condos that crumble and fall apart with the next storm, we're producing, we're creating ecological systems, it'll be here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, producing food, fuels, medicines, and fibers, and good livelihood for people. That's the power of borrowing as leverage. If you only have a dollar, you can only buy a dollar's worth of stuff. But if you have a dollar and you borrow 10, you can now leverage a much bigger project with that borrowed money. Don't be afraid to borrow money. That's how the system works. And if you've designed it to be profitable, guess what? It'll be okay. Worst case scenario, you go bankrupt. And then what? Oh, they take it away. So what? So what? They take my farm away. I've had 20 years of really good life here. I eat really well, raise a family. You know, we play lots of music. Lots of people have come and gone. They take it away. So what? I planted paradise. I planted paradise. And then, oh, well, gee, what if you die along the way? Well, then your life insurance policy wipes out your debt and your family has real estate paid for free and clear with a perennial permaculture system that's productive for the next 5,000 years and it's paid for free and clear. And you had enough cash left over to put into an endowment fund that'll pay the taxes.
0: That leads to the second question from this. How do you feel about grafting versus seeding?
1: Grafting has its place when you want a uniform variety or whatever. In our system here i'll use apples because apples are the most familiar commonly grafted plant that people are aware of if you eat a macintosh apple it was grafted from the original macintosh apple found in a fence row back in 1839 or whatever it was same with red delicious gala you know summer crisp all that what we did here in our apple orchard i started with seedling rootstock so the actual root of a plant is just a seed you have no idea what its genetics are going to be on top of that, I would graft a variety, and I'd typically, when we first started, we did variety trials. I'd do four plants of one variety, four plants of the next, four of the next. Well, the one branch from the seedling rootstock I'd let grow because that seedling might actually turn into something worthwhile. One of the things I talk about a lot in my presentations is if we're going to do the permaculture principles of observe nature and then imitate nature, we have to understand the difference between an observation and a concept. An observation is something we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, measure with instruments, derive through testing, and if I write down the protocol of how to observe this phenomena and then you follow the same protocol, you'll observe the same thing. Whereas a concept is purely an intellectual idea. It's just an idea. Now, why is that important? Well, I'll mention the term invasive species. You ever heard of that term? Yes. Well, uh, name one species on the face of the planet that has an intellectual concept called invasion. As human beings. When you start to view the world through your concepts, invasion, for example, what do you see? You see an invasion. And how do you respond to an invasion? You fight! And so 99% of all invasive species research is research in order to fight the invasion instead of to actually understand the phenomena of what's occurring. Another place where that bites us in the rear, because we were talking about apples, is orchard. Apple orchard. Well, orchard, name one species that has a concept called orchard, human beings. 100%. Not some, not a lot, not many, not all. 100%. Yeah, yes, all. 100% of all of the problems that you encounter in an apple orchard, I put orchards in quotes, are a result of the fact that you are viewing reality through your lens of orchard and you are Asking nature to comply with your intellectual idea of what an orchard is. It will never behave like your idea of orchard. So you're going to have to spray, prune, snip, this, that, and the other thing, because you are not actually observing reality. You are observing reality through the lens of orchard. Now back to grafting versus seedling. When we started, uh, we had 219 different grafted varieties of apple. And that meant we had 219 times 4. You do the math on that. I think it's at least you know 1,000, almost 2,000 different roots. So we had close to 2,000 different genetic, individually different apples that were out there on the farm. Then what we did is we treated them with my trademarked management technique called STUN, which is Sheer, Total, Utter Neglect. And if they happen to survive Sheer, Total, Utter Neglect, we're interested I am not interested in spending money, inputs, time, labor on a plant that wants to die. If it wants to die, good riddance. It's done, over with. It's out of the gene pool. It doesn't work here. We want something that thrives, does really, really well with our soil. Here's another one with with concepts. There's no such thing as a soil deficiency in anything. There are plants that live everywhere on this planet, no matter what the soil is like. If you're trying to grow corn... In Pennsylvania, for example, and it 's like too much granite, and calcium is this, and whatever' you know corn is maybe not the plant that you 're supposed to be growing, maybe you 're supposed to be growing trees. How about like beech and chestnut and butternut and hickory doesn 't kind of nature tell you that that 's what wants to grow there, so those are the systems we need to focus on. But still back to grafted versus seedlings. So after our variety trials phase, where we had you know some two thousand different genetic variations out there on the landscape we 're now down to about thirty or so that thrive and produce really, really well, pest and disease-free on our site year after year, then we take branches from that and we graft it onto the rootstock elsewhere. Some of that rootstock actually has turned into very, very nice seedlings. And let's go to the concept observation concept thing again. Most of us have heard that it may take a thousand seeds from your apples to get one good variety, so don't bother saving your seeds. They're all going to be different from the parent, yada, yada, yada. Well, then... Which part of that statement may be an observation and which may be a concept? The observation may be that it takes a thousand seeds of apple seeds in order to get one good variety of apple. The concept is, therefore, it's a waste of time to plant apple seeds. That's a disempowering idea, and it has caused you and how many millions of other people to not plant your apple seeds. And I'll ask all of the listeners to the podcast here, how many of you have at least one apple variety that you have selected for on your site that's pest and disease resistant with no fertilizers, fossil fuel inputs, no weeding, no nothing, sheer total utter neglect. How many of you have at least one apple variety that's an awesome, incredible apple? Well, I've got four. Well, because I didn't listen to the concept. Let's take the same observation. It takes a 1,000 apple seeds in order to make one good variety of apple. And let's change the concept. Instead of Therefore, it's a waste of time. Don't plant your seeds. That's a disempowering concept. Let's replace that with how many seeds do we need to get five good apple varieties? And you can answer that question. You know math. We'll need to plant. Okay, so you don't know the answer to that. You'll need 5,000 seeds in order to get five good apple varieties. Just by changing the concept, look at how we've changed the future. If we take every sixth grade class that's out there and have them save their apple seeds plant them in potting soil in a repurposed, you know, milk container from extra milk in the afternoon. And then they take them home, take these plants home, plant them in your backyard and ignore them. Don't do anything to them, nothing. Don't take care of them at all. By the time they're seniors in high school, then we start having taste trials and variety trials and see which ones taste the best, which cook the best, dehydrate the best, are the most pest and disease resistant. How many... Thousands of new apple varieties will we have that are specifically adapted to, you know, central Pennsylvania, to, you know, southern Georgia, to northern Montana, etc. Just by changing an idea, how many seeds does it take to get five good varieties? So grafting is great if you want to replicate what's working for you in your place, if you want that one particular variety. Seedlings are how you generate the new varieties that are adapted to your site, and we do both. So the answer is yes.
0: That simple idea of the need for empowering statements, if we change the way we look at these ideas, we can get a lot more work done. We can do a lot more good in the world by not listening to those criticisms and finding the right way to approach these ideas.
1: That's all I've done with permaculture is I'm starting to see things from the other side of the equal sign. Because an equation has something on one side and an equal sign in the middle and something on the other. Both sides are the same. On one side of the equation, it's like 100,000 plants of $5 each. That's half a million dollars. Oh, that's so expensive. That's one side of the equal sign. The other side of the equal sign is like 100,000 plants, $5 in each. Wow, how much money can I make? It's the same thing. You're just viewing it from the other side of the equation, the other side of the equal sign. Uniformity. We've got to have grafted material so everything's uniform. Who says it has to be uniform? Have you ever grown potatoes or green beans or peas or corn? None of them are uniform. They're all different shapes and sizes. Who says we have to have uniformity in fruit and nuts? That's what machines are for. We go ahead and we grow all these fruits and nuts or all these different sizes, and then after the fact, we process them into various different grades and sizes. That's where your uniformity comes in. What we need is productivity. We want total pounds of yield per acre.
0: And just thinking about the apple, historically... In the United States there was a tradition of apple cider, hard cider and that it was planting apples from seed and then just blending whatever happened to grow into a into a fermentable juice that could then be used to make cider.
1: Let's go back to Johnny Appleseed's day, seventeen hundreds, when they actually planted a, a orchard, it was all seedlings at first. And then what you would do is you'd look at the trees and say, Well guess what? Some of those No pests or diseases bother. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut the other ones off at the stump, take the branches off those ones that are doing really well, graft them onto the stumps that weren't doing well, and now we have a pest and disease-resistant orchard. Why was that important? Because there was no such thing as pest and disease control. There were no sprays to use back then. It was all the genetics of the plants. That's why there were some 20,000, 30,000 different apple varieties at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. This is a uh, new way of doing something that has always been done in the past. We now have a different way to look at it and we can approach it with a lot more clear and sharp intellectual tools. And then why did they ferment it into alcoholic beverage? Well, they didn't have refrigeration. So the only time that you got that brown juice in a jug was the very day that you pressed it. That was the sweet cider we all buy at the co-op or whatever. You would ferment it with no oxygen and it turns into vinegar, and that's a preservative for your foods, or it's a cleaning agent for a scrubbing your floors and your, and your walls. Then you would ferment it with oxygen, and it turns into alcohol, and that's a breakfast drink, and a lunch drink.
0: And a dinner drink and an afternoon drink, and we can mull it and enjoy it in the dark hours. And, and mentioning Johnny Appleseed, I was reading an article recently about the historical Johnny Appleseed versus the mythological man. And that, you know, he was a nurseryman, that his travels were, you know, yes, he was planting apple trees, that part of it was true, but he was planting it in nurseries. You know, an acre here, an acre there, borrowing land from churches and people on his travels, helping to improve the apple varieties.
1: And it's really interesting, I, you can only call this coincidence or divine coincidence, whatever. Where I grew up, most of my childhood was on the top of what's called Ballard Hill, and it was surrounded by this big meandering loop of the Nashua River. And the, the road, it's a historic carriage road from way back in the, like, 1600s, actually. Go to the bottom of the hill to the north, about a mile and a half down the bottom of the hill, was where the Chapman Homestead was, Johnny Appleseed's birthplace. Well, if you go a mile and a half to the south, there's this big, huge farm with a floodplain field at the bottom. That's where the Luther Burbank Homestead was, and that's where the Burbank Potato was developed. So I've got this thing in my, in my blood because I, you know, played in the same trees. I climbed some of the same trees that both those guys would have climbed. Luther Burbank is the human being who is credited with developing more plant varieties than any other human being out there. So it's, you know, several thousand named varieties named after him. He did all of his work before we even knew about genetics and before we even knew about DNA, all that kind of stuff. It was done through mass selection, the same process that I mentioned with you. 2,000 apple varieties, the ones that die, good riddance. The ones that produce a lot, great. And the ones that are pest and disease-free with no inputs, that's the ones I want. That's how he did it. Then Johnny Appleseed took his trees, seedling trees, everywhere he went, set up nurseries and farms over and over and over again. So I've got both those guys in my blood. If I would be uh, so honored as to turn to them and give them thanks for sending me off in the right direction i guess i would do that and hopefully i'm carrying on their their good work
0: and sharing your voice with me today allows that sentiment to go out into the ether i love these conversations and approaching this more as a dialogue and less as like a twenty question because of the places that we're allowed to go and thank you for being part of that process and sharing all of this information with me i really appreciate it
1: you bet. We'll never get to twenty the way you're asking questions, or maybe it's the way I'm answering them.
0: A <laughs> ah, little from column A, a little from column B, because we've still got eight more questions. What tools and infrastructure are needed to start a nursery project or a nursery business?
1: A human being, seeds. That's it. Seeds and creativity and the, and the drive to make it happen. All you got to do is get a handful of seeds. Somebody's already in the nursery business. You don't need to start. A Grower business, you used to become a distributor broker. You, know, you just supply someone with seeds and sell those, sell those seeds from them. Don't even supply them with seeds yet. Why don't you just go up to a nursery and say, Hey, I'd like to be an independent sales rep. I'll work on commission only. You don't have to pay me any salary or any wage. I'll just sell trees. So then you start going around selling trees. You didn't even grow them, didn't save the seed. Well, then you start selecting seed because now you're going around talking with different people, finding different plants out in the landscape, supply your employer with seed and do the same thing that I was talking about. That's you know That was one of the ways that I got started. I started by selling trees for somebody else. They didn't have anybody selling their plant. They were, they were selling all their own plant material. I said, i tell you what, I'll just be an independent sales broker. I get 50 cents a tree. They're like, well, sure. Okay. So I go out and I sell them. I get 50 cents every single tree that I sell. So all I have to do is I sell two trees and I've paid for mine. So start that way. Don't reinvent the wheel. The wheels exist. Go out and make somebody else's life better, and yours will be better in the process.
0: You said at one point along that all of this wasn't about sound bites and everything else, but there are quite a few quotable quotes in this one.
1: But they all fit within a pattern, because I know what the bigger pattern is, and these are not out of context.
0: From Wyatt Regan, how do you market your tree crops locally or otherwise?
1: The actual harvested products currently right now, the... Chestnuts are going to my uh, local food co-ops, local meaning within the nearest 80 miles or so. The hazelnuts right now, we've recently founded a hazelnut growers collaborative. They were previously, I was selling them all direct market to individuals because when you're the crazy guy who actually like produces stuff instead of talks about producing stuff, you have something that can then sell. And so people seek it out and will buy it. But now that there's enough of us in the area, we're uh, forming our own Hazelnut Collaborative and we're going to start marketing hazelnut products. This is a heresy. Did you know that there already is a huge mass market food distribution system already in place and we don't have to make another one? All that we have to do is deliver product to the brokers and the wholesalers that buy this product. They will then distribute them to the retailers who sell the product. What that means is in order to get it to the brokers or the wholesalers, you have, have to have enough of a quantity to pay the freight to get it there. You have to have enough of a quantity to justify the equipment that will put it into the form that the wholesalers and the um, brokers want. So that means it has to be done to scale. Five hazelnut bushes in your backyard is not a business no matter how you slice it because you will not yield enough hazelnuts to justify the expense and equipment even to take the husks off it for your own personal use. It's a waste of time. What you need to be doing is talking about acres because we're talking about real markets here and real food for real people. So we need to grow enough of a quantity. And since me personally on my own farm, I don't have enough of a quantity, quantity to justify all the equipment. I am collaborating with other hazelnut growers. We'll buy equipment together. Actually, all of us have some of the equipment, so we're throwing it all in the mix. That will then own all t- uh, together, and then the processing company will husk the hazelnuts, crack the hazelnuts, sort the kernels, and you know press all the oils, make all the different products out of the hazelnuts, and then market the hazelnuts for us. And my produce all goes wholesale through the Organic Valley Cooperative, which is very much a model that we're following with the nut products. So the, the thing with the um, marketing the the nut products, chestnuts alone. If we were to plant chestnuts at the rate that are currently being planted in the USA alone, about 600 acres a year get planted in the USA, it'll take us 40 years just to catch up with the demand for chestnuts back in 1980. We are vastly, vastly underserving the demand in the marketplaces, seven billion people on this planet. They use a lot of food, a lot of different things. And if you are concerned that you won't have any markets for your woody crop, just fold your hands, go apply for a job at Walmart, and just forget about it. There are 7 billion people on this planet. Everything's for sale, man. Everything. Pet rocks, the plastic sandals, everything is for sale. And it's not like at little niche markets. There's no such thing as a niche market. There's only huge, vast, mass markets. And if you're only able to sell niche quantities of product, that's probably because that's all you've produced or it's because you're producing it in a form that the real market doesn't want. So what we permaculturists need to do is step up to the plate and start really producing stuff, like really, for real, like not five bushes, but how about 500 acres of bushes? Then we can justify all of the equipment. Now we're in the game. And once we're in the game and we're economically viable, Now we can stand tall and proud, shoulder to shoulder with all the other producers of what other product is and say, yeah, but guess what? We're permaculturists and this is how we're doing it. And we can lay our cards on the table and say, catch us if you can. Catch us if you can. See if you can produce your crop at a lower expense than we can. See if you can produce a more nutritious crop than we can. See if you can produce it with fewer pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, fertilizers. See if you can actually plant more acres to rich, diverse polycultures instead of monocultures with herbicide bare dirt underneath it. Come on, catch us if you can. I dare you.
0: This is just me wondering, what varieties of chestnuts are you planting?
1: Yes. So part of what it's important to repeat again is that we start every phase with variety trials and you plant all these different seedling varieties and then you select out of those seedling varieties the ones that reproduce the quickest. For chestnuts, for me, if they don't produce within five years, I uh, cut them down. I'm not interested. They have to produce within five years. They have to be disease resistant, They're resistant to uh, American chestnut blight. And they have to be cold hardy here. They got to be cold hardy. We get to 50 below, you know, every 10 or 15 years or so. So cold hardiness, disease resistant, and growing with sheer total utter neglect are my selection criteria. So we start with variety trials, and what comes out of it are seedlings. So the chestnuts that I'm growing right now. Once upon a time, there was a whole bunch of straight Americans, straight Chinese, straight Europeans, and then hybrids that are American-Chinese crosses from a whole bunch of different nurseries all across the USA. And then in the past 20 years, the ones that don't perform the way I need them to perform, they disappear, and I inoculate them with mushroom spawn, and they become shiitakes or oyster mushrooms or reishis or matakis. And then the ones that are left behind from the looks of them, it seems to me that the uh, genetics are becoming more and more chinese So I guess what we've been doing is selecting more for cold hardy Chinese genetics rather than mixing the American genetics for the big huge tall tree because this is about our fourth generation, fourth or fifth generation now of our own chestnuts from our own seed. Because we're selecting for trees that produce so young. You know, the turnaround is really quick. I've got three different family lines of chestnuts that you put the seed in the ground, they flower as soon as they sprout. So if we want to rapidly, rapidly, rapidly amp up our woody crop production, you know, across the planet, it's not going to take long. It just takes lots of seeds in the ground. Back to that thousand apple seeds for one good variety. We need tens of millions of seeds put in the ground. And let's see what nature can throw at us. And what's amazing about that is that it's so incredibly cost effective. I put these seeds in the ground, and then what was my management technique? Stun, sheer, total, utter neglect. How much does sheer, total, utter neglect cost? I don't have to build a 55 billion dollar, you know, university laboratory with stainless steel and clean rooms and you know genetic research and DNA. I just roll the genetic dice, put the seeds in the ground. We can outcompete genetic engineering on a dollar cost per genetic variation. They'll never be able to keep up with the power of sex. We can just, you know, seed variation, wow. Keep planting more seeds. We can come up with every every variation that nature possibly could. Even if the variation isn't immediately successful this generation, it might have traits that we want to carry over to the next generation. So a plant that would have died under a natural selection protocol, because we're keeping an eye out for it and we see this one particular plant, we're going to save the seed and let it cross again With the gene pool, which are now, of course, fast reproduced, pest and disease resistant, hold hardy, then it's possible to come up with traits that are like double recessive that never would have occurred in nature. Then we could do quadruple recessive and so on. The potential of plant variation through mass selection breeding, Luther Burbank style breeding is unbeatable, totally unbeatable. We have to do it, though. We can't talk about it, blog about it, sit on our butts. We actually have to put seeds in the ground and then make choices.
0: And I'm thinking about at all the places that we've gone between the first conversation the second piece is that if the land that you're even renting is already paid for by the trees that you're already planting then you can afford to put aside a piece of it to do these kinds of trials.
1: Well the trials are taking place over the whole thing. When we plant trees if you look at the research cuz we've been talking about chestnuts if you plant chestnuts 30 feet apart. There's only 50 trees per acre. That's like trying to play Yahtzee with three dice. In Yahtzee, you roll five of a kind. You get Yahtzee, everybody goes, whoopee! Well, if I give you three dice, you could roll three dice forever and never roll five of a kind. You're playing with too few dice. Whereas if we're going to take an acre of ground, let's plant 4,000 seedlings on that acre of ground. Now we have a lot of dice. Is trying to play Yahtzee with 10,000 dice. We'll probably have 10, 15, 20 Yahtzees out there. Now we remove the stuff that's not Yahtzee, and what do we got left behind? So we're doing the breeding work everywhere, all the time. The breeding work is how we're doing restoration agriculture. It's not something you do on the side. It is how we do it.
0: Uh, It's built into the process. And I live near a big tree preserve where they're breeding chestnuts to try to get a disease-resistant American chestnut. But I think about what you are doing. If everybody was planting American chestnut seedlings everywhere, even in their own backyard, that we probably would have found a resistant variety by now.
1: That's right. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, we don't need to, and this is part of what bums me out about the whole chestnut thing. Recently, they've uh, done some gene splicing, and they put the uh, resistance to a certain wheat rust into chestnut, and they've planted it out in Central Park where, you know, the blight first showed up. And they're going to wait and see if this tree ever gets blight. And they're, you know, theorizing, hoping that it will be resistant to American chestnut blight. but that bums me out because now there's chestnuts out there that have wheat genes in them. So it's quite possible that for folks who are gluten intolerant and another, want another flour substitute instead of, you know, wheat, chestnut someday may be out of the question because they've already already genetically engineered wheat right into the chestnut. And it's totally foolish, totally unnecessary, inexpensive. And it's harmful to other values that we could have had, you know, gluten free flour.
0: And that was part two of three with Mark Shepard. This is another discussion about how to bring profit and entrepreneurship into permaculture. This isn't something that I personally find easy to do and know that I continue to work on it, but it is something that we have to do. As Mark said, we do this work and then invite the other systems to keep up with us as we create a better world now, and for the future, and do it in an equitable, profitable way. This isn't a game or something we play at, but real work to make a difference. We can do it. To support that entrepreneurial path, I have some interviews already recorded that will come out over the coming months with people like Ethan Rowland to discuss the eight forms of capital and regenerative enterprise, and how we can apply permaculture to business. And also with Carol Sanford, to discuss how we can apply business to permaculture and find the essence of our entrepreneurial work to grow and build what it is we are doing so that we can bring functional permaculture models into the mainstream. Along the way, as you do your work, if there's any way that I can assist you, let me know. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at the Until the next time, create a better world each day by taking care of earth yourself, and each other.